Welcome to Open Door Talks, a podcast series for independent musicians on how to navigate the music industry. I'm your host, Lex Luca, a music producer and DJ from London. I'll be talking to your favorite music makers about their journeys to success. Expect to hear a whole host of tips and tricks from seasoned professionals to help you move forward with your music. Follow Open Door Talks on your favorite podcast platform and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources. Welcome to Open Door Talks, your guide on how to move forward with your music. My name is Lex Luca, and this week we have a house music legend in the building, Roger Sanchez. Roger is a Grammy award-winning producer. He's probably best known for his tracks, Another Chance and Love Dancing. And he's accomplished so much over the last 30 years. He's very much a DJ's DJ. He plays on four decks. He's the king of the hustle and he's one of the busiest DJs on the scene right now. This podcast, we go deep into his early years and influences. Roger shares his production techniques, how to deal with self-doubt and how we as music makers are vessels. We have a lot to learn from Roger, and I think you'll get a lot from this conversation. Let's jump right in. Roger, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Can we start off by you telling us who you are and what you do? My name is Roger Sanchez, born in New York City, currently living in Miami. I am a producer, DJ, remixer, songwriter, pretty much grew up with disco funk soul but i'm all about house music so your reputation precedes you as we know can you just tell us when this music thing started for you and what you were like back then when you were growing up i mean really i got into djing i've been into music since i was really really very very young like literally five six years old but really getting deeper into music i would say i started djing around 13 years old a little bit before then I was into break dancing. So kind of like my transition was from being a dancer on the dance floor to then having friends of mine who were DJs and then seeing them kind of control the dance floor and then wanting to get behind the decks to have that control of the dance floor myself. And then from there, you know, which was basically taking my mother's turntables, saving up money from various odd jobs, like working at the supermarket, paper routes, that whole thing, to buy my own first DJ mixer and then my first SL belt-driven turntable, the SL100 from Techniques, until I was able to save enough money to buy myself a proper pair of Technique 1200s. From that point, DJing really kind of getting my skill in at kind of the beginning of the whole hip-hop movement, you know, cutting up funk, soul, and disco breaks, to then taking that and starting to get into house music when it first started coming over from Chicago. And being based in New York, I was playing everything from, like, disco, funk, soul, early hip-hop, freestyle. But when house music really started coming over from Chicago, I was hooked. This time, I'm, you know, I was a bit older. I was already past my 18th birthday, going to places like the Paradise Garage, the Loft in New York City. I then started going to a friend of mine's house who had a little production studio in his basement because I wanted to make beats to play that no one else had off of Real to Real. Um, like I had seen a couple of DJs playing tracks on Real to Real that were just nobody had them. So you'd either do play Real to Real or burn an acetate 
if you wanted to spend the money so I can have those tracks to play at my sets. And that then really led me into production. Uh, and my first release was on a label called Quark Records. They gave me my own imprint called Outer Limits. And I dropped my very first release, Dream World, which I believe that was 1989 was my very first release. We're going back some uh, young man, you know, kind of running around the city of New York City collecting records from all the record labels. And then that's where it really started. They were in the same building as Strictly Rhythm. I met Gladys Pizarro from Strictly Rhythm, who was really into the record. And she says, hey, let me put you into the studio so you can kind of create something for our label. And what I came out with was an EP, and one of the tracks was Love Dancing. And I created this moniker, Underground Solution. And that record was my first real kind of took off almost out of the gate after they gave Tony Humphreys a promo. He debuted it at Zanzibar. It was like the anniversary or some big event at Zanzibar. And I think he played it like five times or six times that night. And then that really kind of started the whole interest in what I was doing in my own flavor of house. How would you describe yourself back then? I mean, I went to the High School of Art and Design, so I've always been an artist my entire life. I grew up collecting comic books and then inevitably drawing my own comics, creating characters, getting into breakdancing and dancing. It was really kind of a big thing uh, in the 80s in New York. And I was always the kind of artistic one that was always in the breakdance circle. I got into graffiti in high school. So anything connected to the culture of art and then music and then especially then the early hip-hop culture uh, which encompassed graffiti DJing breakdancing that was really where I was from I used to dress like that I was very much about trying to always expand on what I was doing and try to take everything to the next level and when I started DJing I really was about the technical skill of it, as well as really connecting with the crowd and finding how to move the crowd. And then it became about, I have unique exclusive things that nobody else has that gives me a little bit of an edge. So I've kind of always been competitive on that front, but also very much about the craft. I'm like, I really wanted to learn every nuance of it and just try to see how far I could push whatever I was doing, whether it was DJing, and then when I first started getting into music production, try to be as underground and as creative as I possibly could, but always aimed it at the dance floor. So what do you think you were, dare I say, naturally good at? I was always very good at being very technical, creating these layered mixes. I got into, when I first started playing breaks and then hip-hop I got really good at scratching and the technical aspect of it then it became about how do I put that together in such a way that it really connects with the crowd I got into really a lot of percussion tribal drums that Latin element which was very much a foundation of everything that I've done going into the studio I then really first gravitated to drums because that's kind of like the basis of most of what I do so I became really good at coming up with really cool, you know, jacking, swinging drums. The whole swing thing really just connected for me. I think that comes from the whole Latin drum thing. 
So performance-wise, it was always about creating this unique kind of remix or coming up with like an acapella over a track and just kind of creating really unique moments and then doing a very graduated journey. Because back then I would, I had started, once I started getting into promoting my own events in the clubs, there would be times where I would be playing from start to finish. So that's kind of like the beginning, you know, that I would play at some of these local bars and, and small places where it was like, okay, you start the night, you finish the night. So I was there when the, the, the kind of cleaning people were cleaning up the place and the bartender was setting up till the end of the night. That taught me how to really take the crowd on a journey by building, pacing things. And that's really what I became very good at. Let's flip that and say, what were you not so good at? And then, you know, what did you do to get better? I was never good at the politics. <laughs> I, <did. laughs> I never liked the politicking part of trying to like really be kissing someone's butt to have a, a, a job. I did create my own street team for promotion. I mean, there was a part, there was a time when I was on selling mixtapes on Broadway. I was one of the early guys doing that in the city with a boom box and a box of cassettes, you know. So I was very good at hustling, but I didn't like the kind of political side of whose butt do I need to kiss to, to get up there? I've always been like, okay, I'm just going to try to outwork everyone. When it came to production, playing keys, I, I always figured out how to find the right chords or how to construct, but I'm not the best pianist. I'm not the best player, but I can create um, chords. I can kind of take my time and create rhythms. I was always very good at the rhythmic side. The performance aspect of playing keys was never like my strong suit. So I used to bring in keyboard players and find the chords to block them out and kind of let them do their thing. And I was probably not too good at saving money when it came to buying equipment because I was always about <laughs> let me get the next cutting edge thing. And I've always been about technology moving forward. So really, that's kind of like my... Uh, was wasn't my strong suit was playing the political game do you feel like you've you've got better at that over the years i think i i have i mean there are two aspects to this i'm very open um to people and i tend to be very warm but i've also learned um by having been burned quite a few times how to observe people and before i let people kind of get into my inner circle I have quite a few filter processes. What I have been able to do, though, is, is especially now with social media, is understand what it takes and how to present and market myself. Um, and But being always very much 100% genuine about who I am as an artist and as a person. And I think once things really took off for me, the inevitability of having people around you and then the comparisons that come up in the music business, you know, especially when it comes to DJ, oh, this DJ's here, or this DJ's getting paid there, or this DJ's getting that gig and whatever. It's taken me quite a while to kind of, rather than paying attention to what everybody else is doing, being very focused on enjoying my own personal process and embracing who I am and what I do, rather than trying to be somebody else or not even be somebody else, but try to be in that situation or that group of people 
that has a lot to do with really being happy in this field. And I think that's one thing that probably isn't spoken about as much, but I think it's very important that you really, if you're in this, you should really be enjoying the process as opposed to trying to look at what the result is in terms of rankings and so on and so forth. That'll come. Be very genuine and the people that will embrace you and that will support you, you're going to find them. And as time went on, I became better at recognizing my audience and really feeding them and then growing from there. One of the reasons I started the songwriting camps is because being a music producer is full of challenges. And one of those things is finding love in the process and probably more and more these days, not being so fixated on the result and the numbers and all of the other things that come with that. It's kind of hard not to be aware of it. You know what I'm saying? It's hard not to be aware of the numbers. So it's not like ignore the numbers, but don't let the numbers become the priority or the reason that you do things. Is there a way that you've developed that skill or is that something you've always been quite good at not obsessing too much over those? No, that, that that's trial and error, man. Okay. <laughs> that, that was trial and error. That was learning the inevitably you surround yourself with people you have a crew you then take on management and different people some people will be very good for you some will not no matter who is in your life they're a lesson to be taught and one of my difficult lessons and i've been through some pretty tough ones was to trust my own instinct and my own process and when i was surrounded by people that were constantly bringing up comparisons to others it affected me negatively for a period of time to a point where you know i was down on my own stuff i was like oh, i'm you know now how i'm no longer relevant or i was this and i'm not that and i kind of did a lot of internal work a lot of i read a lot of helpful self-help books spiritual books but more importantly taking time to myself and really remembering when I started how much fun this was because I think that at some point in time when it becomes a career and you're starting to generate significant income and there are people that are basically feeding off of you it becomes a job if you're not careful to maintain that almost innocent uh, obsession with the art form and I think for me it was kind of let me push a lot I had to push a lot of people away and kind of almost clean the slate to then rebuild my entire team around the basis of I'm doing this because of love and this is how I want to do things. When I was able to do that, and I literally had to press reset on so many things in my life, that's when I was able to kind of come back to it in a way where I truly enjoyed not only the process, but now I can enjoy the people around me and, you know, the results of it. It's one of the best things about doing this. Probably a good time, full disclosure, that you know you and I have worked together for a long, long time now on your radio show. I produce your radio show. Quite some time. And you know, in that time, I've seen you, should we say, refresh your team in several different circumstances. <laughs> oh, yeah. You've seen me reset. The great reset. You know, as I've seen it, well, you know, where you're at now is in a really, really positive and strong place. And so we kind of need these resets to live and to learn and to grow and develop and in your situation to build a better team that works for you more effectively. 
I think that's probably a good lesson as well, isn't it? A hundred percent. And part of it is perspective. It's easy to lose perspective, especially when you do have success. And then there is an entire ecosystem that becomes part of your life. There are some times, and it's possible that there may be some people in there that are not really in it for your best interest, but how much they can actually generate from you. It's important to recognize that. But for me, the perspective was, I would rather have a team that really not only understands and appreciates what I do, but is there to help me realize my goals rather than saying, this is how you need to do things in order to be successful. I think success is very much a subjective thing because there are, you know, you have to define what success means to you. That perspective allowed me to rebuild my team. And you, you're right. You've seen the restructuring it. And what I've gotten to now, the reason things are so positive for me is because I went back to the place where I started and remembered how much fun I always had doing this. And then I made a promise to myself that I would do everything to continue to keep it fun. And rather than trying to say, well, this pays me X amount or this does this and that, how much joy do I derive from it? And also making sure I have my own personal time and life. So all those things come after perspective. In the beginning, there was a, you know, I was straight grind. You know, you've seen kind of me nose to the grindstone. But I think the place that I'm in kind of coincides with the kind of resurgence of house music and the kind of vibes when I first started really coming up in this scene. It's kind of come back to that. So it's almost coincided naturally with all of it. So let's go back there. Queens, New York, late 80s, early 90s. What was that like as you were working the scene and making a name for yourself? In the in the kind of late 80s, early 90s, I was just coming out of high school, um, 85, going to college, um, studying architecture. So when I started noticing that DJing was taking over far more of my time, my studies were suffering a bit, and my father who's always been very much about my me being on my studies. He's an engineer, actually surprised me with a like my fourth year in college. And he said, listen, why don't you, um, I see that you're really spending a lot of time with this music thing. And it doesn't really look like you have as much passion for architecture. Why don't you, you know, you never know, you might be the best DJ in the world. Why don't you follow your heart? That was a major transition for me. So during that period of time, in kind of like the early, like the late 80s, it was very much about the graffiti scene, club scene was really was very very strong in New York City. The house music scene was really just starting to come in, especially right in the top of the '90s. Uh, I was also a Billboard reporting DJ right around that time, whereby I would submit my chart every week to the dance chart of Billboard, and that really put me on the radar of a lot of record labels. So I used to go around Manhattan because there was a big concentration of record labels to pick up promos to play out. I started promoting my own events. I started off at a place called Baseline, and I came up with my event series Ego Trip, which I then moved to the basement of Mars, which was a club called Mars in, in the um, meatpacking district of Manhattan. That grew, and around that time is when I was I had dropped the first single, um, Dream World. And then shortly afterward, 
was my kind of breakout single, Love Dancing. Right when Love Dancing hit, my visibility really grew in New York City. And then I started growing from 100, 150, 200 capacity venues to like 2,000, 3,000 cap venues. And I was doing my own ego trip party with another D in conjunction with another DJ named Roman Ricardo, who's a big promoter DJ in New York. And we moved it to the Octagon. And that was really where playing every week, my own event, really playing a lot of these tracks that I was developing. And I was then releasing very consistently with Strictly Rhythm Records. Strictly Rhythm then took me on my very first European tour to the UK. And we went up and down everywhere from, I think the first place that I played was Blackpool of all places in the UK. Yeah, Blackpool was my was my introduction to the UK. And then from there, we were like, I think it was Huddersfield. We went up north. The last place I played was London after playing in Scotland. And I was on that tour with Todd Terry, who was a major hero of mine. And Todd really kind of took to me and, and gave me a lot of kind of big brother advice on how to navigate the music industry as kind of he was navigating it. So he and I have become close um, we've remained really close friends over the years, but I really, you know, Todd Terry was like the man in house music from New York City at that point in time. And he was just consistent, tons of releases. And then that key became kind of like the early 90s, mid 90s and kind of the, the whole 90s was me coming back and forth to, to the UK, spending long periods of time, residencies when the Ministry of Sound opened up. That kind of was the full transition and building from kind of like the the breaks in hip hop and disco and soul DJ to really diving full on to house music and see being part of the kind of the the growth and the birth of that scene out of New York City. What do you think it was about you back then that you were able to get your own night and then move from Mars to the Octagon? For me, it was about the hustle. I was selling tapes on the street at that time and taking the money that I had gained from selling all the tapes and basically paying off silly bar guarantees that I could never meet in the very beginning because I had a bunch of young kids who used to come see me play, never used to drink alcohol. So I used to, but I used that to build my name. The mixtapes were circulating in New York. The, the parties I was doing was growing, were growing bigger and bigger. And then I started releasing records on Strictly Rhythm and that kind of consistent release schedule on Strictly really brought my name to the forefront, especially after Love Dancing became a big record. The fact that I had a street team helped me promote. Um, they were handling out flyers to my events. The, the tapes were going all around the city. So it really has been about the hustle. And I've been a hustler from day one. I've always been like, okay, what does it take to do this? Let's go in there. Let's get it done. And, and I think I kind of got a lot of that from my father in terms of the work ethic. And I think that probably one of the most important things you can have as an artist in the music industry is a very powerful work ethic. You have to out hustle everyone if you really want to kind of come through because there's a lot of people doing it. And now more than ever, you know, you really have to create content, get visibility, take the time, have create a lot of music 
that's your content back then it wasn't content it was just releases because social media wasn't the thing then now it's you're making music and it's content but it's visibility is getting building a following so were were other people selling mixtapes as well or was that just you well i was one of the the several guys and i was actually brought into it by a guy named dj linden who now um lives in tampa and I've known Lyndon for a long time. He was another DJ, big in the New York kind of Queens scene, living in Queens. But he was one of the guys who said, hey, Roger, I want you to, you know, I, I got, I, I want to show you something. And he's like, he, there was one other guy, this first guy named Mike. I forget what his last name was. He was one of the first guys with the boombox and dreads out on Broadway selling tapes. Lyndon was able to secure a spot inside Astor Haircutters, which was a very, very popular place that a lot of kids used to go and get their hair cut and was able to sell tapes out of there. And then we started, you know, growing it. I got a, um, I was able to secure a table at the Antique Boutique. I used to sell in front of there. Then I was selling aside there. So that hustle mentality is really what helped me kind of get that. And Lyndon bringing me in, was because I was the kind of the guy who was really in the know of like the upcoming underground stuff, all the hot stuff. Linden was very much on the more crossover scene, more hip hop. So he kind of needed that balance. Whereas he did the more freestyle commercial stuff. I was the Mr. Underground. So we made a really good kind of team to cover all the bases. You have your own podcast, which is called The Hustle. The Hustle, yes. That's something that I've certainly seen in your work ethic throughout all of your careers. It's very inspiring. Thank you. You mentioned Todd Terry. Who were the other guys at that time that you really looked up to as DJs and the other producers? I mean, in terms of DJs, I came up with guys like Red Alert from the hip hop side, Tony Humphreys, Timmy Regisford, Frankie Knuckles, um, who wound up becoming my neighbor when we lived in Manhattan. Um, rest in peace, Frankie Knuckles. He's been gone for a few, quite a few years, but he, we became very good friends. He was another mentor who kind of really gave me that perspective david morales these are guys that were really big in the new york city scene i used to go check out uh, david and, and frankie playing in places like the red zone was david's place um the world was frankie's residency larry levan when he was around with the paradise garage dave mancuso at the loft he was all about the selection because he would literally play a record from start to finish let it finish. People would clap. Then he would play the next one. He was all about immaculate selection. Guys like Louis Vega was playing at that point in time. He was playing freestyles before he really got into house music. But he was one of the most most technical DJs in terms of his mixing ability. The kind of blending long mixes. I really kind of got a lot of that from Tony and from Timmy Regisford. So those are guys that really kind of formed the basis of a lot of the sounds that I was listening to in New York City. And then as I was coming up, there was like, you know, Masters at Work, which is Kenny and Louie. Um, I'm trying to remember what other New York guys with Danny Teneglia, of course, quite a few guys from, from New York. And then everybody from the UK that really started becoming, you know, more visible to me. What was it about the DJs that really inspired you? Depending on who they are, each of them had different things. With Timmy Regisford and Tony, it was like their kind of gradual long mixes. 
with Danny Teneglia was his selection was um, um, amazing. Same thing went for Larry Levan, one of the the DJs that I had met coming into the UK that was technically amazing was Carl Cox. He was always really up there. Jeff Mills is one of the other more technical DJs who I always thought was uh, impressive. And the other DJs like David Morales, again, the transitions that they would do and how they were able to create a vibe that was unique to them really is what spoke to me and what made me appreciate and help me to push my craft to a certain place. You mentioned Frankie Knuckles. Can you tell us a story about how you became Neighbours? So I was living in Queens for quite a few years where I was born and raised. And then I started looking for an apartment in Manhattan because I felt like, okay, it's time for me to to leave Queens. I want to be in the city. And I found an apartment on the ground floor in the building in Chelsea and it was a triplex apartment so they had a basement which is where I built my recording studio it had the main level which was my living room dining room kitchen and then it had another room on top which was my bedroom and it was really really cool living in Manhattan and I found out by accident one day as I'm walking into the building I see Frankie and I'm like Frankie what you know? What are you doing here? He's like, yeah, I live upstairs. I'm like, I'm your new neighbor. I live downstairs, and it was just kind of totally um, unexpected. I had no idea that he lived there when I rented the apartment, and it just turned out that we were neighbors. So for years, Frankie and I lived in the same building until I moved out to New Jersey with my ex at that point in time. What would you say you learned from Frankie that really set you up for your music career? From Frankie, I learned paying attention to your audience and how to project your vibe and always make keeping a very soulful um he was all about soul so for frankie was about projecting that soulful vibe he was a technical dj but not as technical as you know somebody that came from the hip-hop world that's used to trying to do these little blends of stuff frankie was all about the seamless long transitions but setting a tone and a mood was one thing he was really really very good at and that was something that i really was able to kind of take from how to set that mood how to project what you're trying to communicate to a crowd it certainly served you pretty well over the years i must say it's definitely helped (laughs) you produced love dancing pretty early on yes and i happen to have dug it out uh, from my record collection there you go I don't know what to say that hasn't already been said, but it's still, you know, a, a track that sounds so fresh and a track that is so easy to drop at any time of the night and it always works. Thank you. Tell us about how that track came about. So as I mentioned before, Gladys Pizarro had heard my um, Dream World record, which was, um, I think she described it as this atmospheric ambient style of, of house music. And she kind of wanted something like that. So I went to the studio. She booked a studio in Manhattan for me. She booked like three days or two days. I forget how many days it was she booked. And I went in there on the first day, kind of did a couple of tracks. And then I had an idea on the second day of, of that was inspired by the sample from Loose Joints. Is it all over my face? 
and I was kind of, I brought a bunch of, of records to sample to kind of take ideas and vibe with. And I found that loose joint sample. And I, and I remember the engineer was using an Atari computer. It was like Simpty Tracks Gold, which I wanted, which I was using uh, as well. And we laid out the drums. I use a Yamaha Juno 106 for the, for the bass line. And uh, uh, I think it was an M1 for the Rhodes that we wound up playing on it. The engineer was also a keyboard player. So as I've kind of found the roads, he, he kind of did the flute solo that's in the track. It was that hook, the sample that you got me love dancing that really set the tone for what I wanted to do with the track. And I kind of created a baseline that emulated a little bit of what the sample in the loose joints track was. And that one was very different from the other two tracks that I had done. So when I presented her the three tracks as an EP, she was like, that love dancing track, I think that's the one. And literally that turned out to be the one that took off for me. And did you realize at the time how big it was going to be? I think I knew the level that it was going to possibly connect right because I was playing it at Mars, at the basement of Mars. And that was one of the ones that when the dancers would, would hear a track that they really liked, they would form a circle and start battling. So that was always one of, you know, one of the circle children, as we used to call it, kind of anthems. And then when Tony Humphreys really broke it off of a test pressing, that's when I knew I'm like, okay, this one is the one. This one has something that that's new for me. Do you find that easy when you're in the studio to get that perspective? It's something that I find more challenging, actually, to really get perspective on a record while I'm still in there. How is that for you? No, I'm the same way. Honestly, a lot of the things that I would that I thought, yeah, this is like this is it, this is popping, doesn't go anywhere. It's it's always the ones I find sometimes where I'm like, yeah, it's, I I feel good about it, but I don't really have any expectations that surprise the shit out of me. And I think that one of the things for me is not to put expectations on tracks. It's become even more important for me to just put down my ideas to communicate something and to kind of worry about how it's going to do or not worry about how it's going to do. Just try to set it up to connect and communicate and let it do what it's going to do, but to keep on moving forward. So I don't really know what's a hit and I don't try to make hits. I just try to communicate whatever's in my head and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try things and sometimes it won't work. And I'll be like, eh, didn't like it. Or sometimes I'll be like, yep, that's cool. Let's put that there. Let's continue going. And especially getting into writing an album, like now I've just in, I think the the third quarter of finishing my new artist album, kind of getting, it's getting close to me finishing it. The process has taken me two years, but I've been having fun writing. And then it starts to form a picture. And I found that over the years that as I'm, doing these tracks they start to form kind of a narrative and a picture yeah i've heard you in the past talk about the producer or yourself being a vessel in a way you're chosen and the music comes through you can you talk to that yeah i i have this theory that whenever i create something uh, like whether it be graffiti art or music or whatever it is it becomes part of the world i don't own it and it's especially when it comes to songs, I just kind of feel like they're almost floating in the ether and they choose you 
to become a vessel. Now, here's what happens. A lot of times I have an idea that I think, wow, that's an amazing idea. I'm nowhere near any place that I could put it down. And then the idea leaves. So it's kind of like, well, sometimes I'll sing it to myself in my head or I'll do a voice note. And sometimes I'll remember it, which means that song decided to hang around. But sometimes it comes in and it goes. It means it might have chosen somebody else because this vessel wasn't prepared. But sometimes when it hits and the kind of everything aligns, then the song chooses you, you're the vessel, it comes through, it gets expressed, and then that it becomes its own thing in the world. You're just the the vessel that it chose to come through. And I think it's helped me to kind of, rather than have this attitude like, I am the man, I am this and that, it kind of helps me to kind of ground myself and approach this with a little bit more humility of like, well, I hope a good one chooses me or I have an idea and let's see if, if I can attract something that'll help me express it and then something will choose me. And it also means that I have to keep working if I want these songs to keep coming through. So that's the other part of it. That's the, the hustle part and the diligence part. In order to keep putting out these songs, you have to constantly be ready for the song to choose you, to be the vessel. Are there particular conditions that you feel you can create in order to be that vessel? Mm. It's interesting. The conditions for me have changed because it used to be I have my studio. This is where I go. I have to create here. Because of my tour schedule, I have been able to really put a studio in my laptop, which is different now. I've, I've built hundred thousand, hundreds of thousands of dollars that I've invested in studios. And I'm sitting in one here in Miami that I built as well. But I find that it's a combination of different places produce different events and maybe a different antenna to, to signal which song is going to come through me. And I like that. I like that I'll get different results in different um, surroundings and, and different environments. So I've been able to make it so that I allow myself the freedom to try to do different things in different places. And so there isn't just one setting. And, you know, sometimes things happen. I, I'm a bit on an airplane and I had an idea and I put it down and, it, and it's come out really cool and I've developed it later on. And sometimes I'm sitting in the studio and just nothing comes. <laughs> That's the other thing. It's like priming a pump. You know, sometimes you got to keep priming it. And if the water doesn't come, you, you keep pumping it. Some days you walk away. Some days you just keep pumping it and the water comes. Other days you pump the handle once, water comes gushing through. So it's kind of like accepting that. I accept the fact that not every day is going to turn out the way I think it is, but there's a bit of, of kind of mystery and excitement to it still, which keeps me intrigued. There's bigger forces at play right here, isn't it? We are not actually in control in that respect, but I think many people think, you know, we, we are in control. That's the illusion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Certainly my experience that some of my biggest records, you know, the main ideas come at uh, the kitchen table or the 20 minute session. Anywhere they're the tracks that have gone big for me. Whereas the one, you know, when I've got seven, eight hours in a studio, you end up with a really great sounding kick drum, but not much else kind of thing. Kick clap. <laughs> Here's one other thing I will say. What I have found from my writing process is that uh, I used to get really hung up on finding the perfect sound, finding the perfect kick, finding the perfect clap. I write a bit differently now. Now I just, Whatever the idea is, I just want to get the idea down. 
So even if the baseline isn't the perfect baseline sound, I need to put the pattern down. Even if the drum, the drum sounds aren't perfect, if I have a pattern in my head, I'll get the fat, the thing that helps me get the idea down fastest that I could write to. I can always come back, and this is what's why I told you it's taken me two years to get to this, detailing it, because I throw down ideas fast now so that I won't forget them, and the, the skeleton is there. Once the skeleton is there, I can build on that, and the idea is not leaving. It's like, gotcha, you're in my trap. I, I, caught, I caught the idea in the trap. I, it's in the snare. It's kind of trying to get away, but I got it, and now I can really take some time to embellish it. So rather than spending eight hours on the kick drum on day one, which then leaves me with a kick, a clap, and a hi-hat, I'm like, okay, I threw down quick drum pattern. Isn't necessarily where I want it to be. You know, sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. But I put down a bass line. I got the pattern. I put down some chords. I got that. I have the skeleton of what it is. For me, it's turned out to be more important to get the idea down first and then go back and then perfect the sounds to a place that I'm happy. But I'm a big proponent on get the idea down fast, as fast as you have it in your head, because it, it it's like smoke. It just disappears in the air. It gets blown away by the wind if you don't grab it. So that's probably a great analogy. Trying to write songs is like grabbing smoke and holding it in your hand. You know, that's that's <laughs> that's a skill to grab smoke and hold it in your hand till it takes form. Doesn't always work. I absolutely love that. So, yeah, take us to back to that time. Love Dancing came out. You were getting busier as a DJ, signed to Strictly, and you were releasing a lot of tunes back then. How did you keep up with that? I was basically living in the studio during the weeks, and then I started getting a lot of remix offers. Um, once I started doing a couple and they they took off, then I was literally, there was a period of time of, I think of about two years, maybe three years where I was literally five days a week in the studio, DJing on the weekends, go away, come back, live in the studio all week. And I was turning out between four to five remixes a month. And back then it was me going into renting out a studio lockouts, like 24 hour lockouts for two or three days, going in with the engineers, keyboard players, so on and so forth banging out the idea, getting it mixed down, being there at the, you know, going in for the long session while my engineer's mixing it down in the big SSL studios, using big giant reel-to-reels for to do to track all the tracks. It was, you know, technology was very different. Time stretching vocals by using a, you know, this this machine that we had to rent. So it was a more involved process. But I was constantly living in the studio. And that then I started, I was building my own, I had my own little kind of home recording studio that I was then developing. And when I moved to Manhattan, then I built my own proper studio and I wasn't going to the bigger studio lockouts all the time. Or I would start the production in my house and then take it to the big studio to finish it and record if I had to record instruments or vocals or whatever have you. That's when I started doing that a lot more. What were you learning back then? I mean, it sounds like an incredible time to be Roger Sanchez, to be you and to be living that life. It, <laughs> I mean, I was getting, learning certain pieces. Like I really became very good at the SP 1200, which I have to relearn. And I've got 
one i still have something that i have to fix on it but i i was able to kind of find one of my sp 1200s um i used to have like four of them at one point in time now i've got one that works so the fact i got an entire giant library of all my floppy disks so i used to basically invest in them so i was learning how to produce on an sp 1200 and that was the box that i was doing a lot of my beats and rhythms in learning how to push myself um then finding different samplers and just experimenting with ideas, getting together with guys like, you know, Sneak and, and Junior doing stuff with Kenny Dope and, you know, different people, the Merc boys from Miami, really collaborating with a lot of different people at that point in time and just kind of pushing my sound, getting, you know, having tribal monikers and soulful monikers. So I really learned the craft of making music, of how to make a record and how to build it from the ground up and then how to reimagine somebody else's songs when I was doing remixes. So it really taught me the discipline of songwriting and, and music production. What were some of the pinch yourself moments looking back now? Meeting people like Gloria Stefan, a lot of big artists, um, re cutting vocals with Kathy Sledge for the remix that I did um, for Take Me Back to Love. Then getting to a place where I was nominated for a Grammy, then I actually won a Grammy for the remix that I did for Hella Good. And I was actually brought into that project by Nelly Hooper, who was one of my favorite producers, especially with what he did with Massive Attack. We became really good friends. And then when he produced the album for No Doubt, he called me up, he said, listen, I've put your name in. I want you to remix this single. Uh, I really feel like you'll do it justice. And then that became the single that I was nominated and won remixer. It was the best remix. Uh, so I, I won the remix, the Grammy for the best remix. It used to be remixer, which was body of work of remixes. And then they changed that to being best remix. So myself and no doubt won for that for that remix that I did a hella good. So that was a, a pinch myself moment being at the Grammys with a Grammy in my hand going, yeah, I did this, <laughs> you know, thank you. Then you start coming to the UK. How was that? And how did that UK scene compared to what was happening in New York? Well, in the UK, house music had really, really taken over. Whereas in New York, it was still pretty underground. There were some crossover records that did very, very well in the U.S., but as a scene itself, dance music was still pretty much a club underground scene, whereas in the U.K., it was massive. So just the visibility, the acceptance, the embrace of the U.K. public for what I was doing, it was just another level. And I felt completely at home, completely embraced and very well loved in the UK. And it's really, I've connected with the UK audiences for years. I think I kind of came into that space at the same time, a lot of other producers like Masters at Work, Todd, you know, David Morales, really had prominence and significance in the UK scene. While the UK scene itself was developing its own artists and, and people that have really, really risen. You know, at the same time, guys like the next generation, guys like Armand Van Helden, you know, Junior Sanchez were developing. And then Daft Punk, uh, which I was introduced to by Kevin McKay at Soma, 
before they signed their deal. And uh, I met up with Thomas Bangleter. Um, he was this young kid that I happened to be in in Paris with my now ex, uh, but my girlfriend at the time. And I had hit him up because I had heard demos of his of Defunk and a couple other tracks. And I was, um, Kevin said, listen, these kids are going to go somewhere. I can't handle it. But with your label, with Narcotic, maybe you could, you know, do something with them. So I wanted to meet him. And he was like, well, we just literally signed a deal to Virgin, but we've been major fans of yours. And I wanted to meet with you and kind of get to know you. And so that was a very, very cool dinner. Fast forward a year later, they're blown up. And then they invited myself, DJ Sneak Jr. and a lot of other of the DJs that they were really inspired and influenced by to tour with them. So all that's happening at the same time that um, I'm doing tons of remixes and, you know, still really building everything in the UK. It was a very, very intense and busy period of time. I can imagine it was. So you toured with Daft Punk. You did a remix for them as well. You and Junior, right? Yeah. So as I was touring with Daft Punk um, throughout the UK, and I played in Strasbourg in Germany, and I think I played um, the, my last gig with them was in Paris. And we were on tour bus. They did a very rock and roll. It's my first tour bus tour. They had a little mini studio set up, and um, Thomas and Guimon asked me to remix Revolution 909. So I started the kind of idea of the remix on the bus. And then when I went back home to New York, I hit up Junior. I said, hey, I want you to come in and work on this track with me, this remix with me. And I recorded my voice saying Revolution 909 because the original one didn't have a vocal. And then that became kind of like that remix really took off with my vocal on it. So it's funny because my vocals appeared on a lot of tracks and uh, people seem to like to, to hear me talk on tracks. So obviously you mentioned Junior. So can you tell us, you know, how you guys formed the S-Men? Yeah, myself and and Junior and Sneak were hanging out in in New York when Sneak was in town. Um, And then we had already been kind of hanging. We then went into the studio and said, hey, let's come up with some tracks. And we came up with the track called Back, which was with the vocal of um, Michael Watford that I had produced and kind of had him do some ad libs for the remix that I did of Kathy Sledge's heart track. And so I sampled that, the, uh, the kind of outtakes of that were not, that weren't used on the remix that I kept. And I used that as part of kind of the intro for back and then sneak and junior and I, you know, I, I laid down the baseline. We came up with the beats. We did the track together. And then when that track was launched, um, we said, why don't we do a tour? Why don't we play together on six decks and a keyboard? They literally invited us to do our first S-Men tour. And our first gig was opening for Craftwork at Tribal Gathering. And that was insane. We rehearsed in my living room in Manhattan at that point in time. And we set up six decks to the keyboard that Junior was playing. And we came up with a routine and we played on six decks together at the same time for a tour. We played the Tribal Gathering. We played in Leeds. I forget where else we played, but we had a whole S-Men tour. And, you know, that was pretty challenging, juggling that on vinyl. <laughs> so this was all on vinyl and keyboards back in the day, but it worked out really, really well. 
dope man i wish i'd been there man that sounds insane was that about the time that another chance came about so uh the s-men kind of daft punk era was around mid 90s and then towards the end of the 90s i was signed by sony to do an album with no demos at that point in time and as i was building the album the dance division from sony went under simon then stepped in because we had been working together for so many years, me doing remixes, and I've done a lot of projects with him. He said, listen, um, I'd like to take this this album on. Why don't I step in and I'll take it over for the UK? And then, you know, he negotiated the deal with the UK and I finished the album. The last track on the album that I did, because I needed another underground track, I'm like, you know, this album needs one more underground track was was uh, another chance. And it just was I used to go vinyl hunting on pretty much most of my tours. I'd find the, the vinyl shop and just go in and dig. Um, and I'd come back from from Montreal and I found a bunch of records. One of them was this album from Toto. Um, and I'd known Toto from the 80s. So I just found this vocal ballad and similar to Love Dancing, I found a hook that inspired me to produce the track around it. And it just became this kind of like bittersweet, very emotional track that I was like, okay, that's cool. That could work at a club. I had no idea it was going to be what it was until I played it at Pacha in Leicester Square. Uh, And that track, out of all the tracks that I played that night, was the one that got a bunch of, of girls running up to the booth going, what was that song? What were like five people came up to me was what is that song and i was like yes yeah, my new track and it became the very first number one record that defected ever had then it became my first number one record so that really was a dramatic shift because when that record went number one then i was put on what i call the treadmill which is this kind of really intense three-week period of going to like morning shows never mind the buzzcocks the evening news all these really kind of like pop star stuff that I was equating to, you know, bands like Spice Girls or Jamiroquai or whoever, I was on that track. So I did all of that, MTV, all of that. It was exhausting. But it shifted me into a much more central visibility, especially in the UK. When that record went number one in the UK, it really kind of marked another transition point for me. And I think that kind of propelled things to the next level. And it's just been going ever since. Did that have an impact on how you make music? And what was the impact of that? For me, I've always been somebody that could write very, very underground tracks. But at the same time, I also have tracks that are much more soulful and more accessible. So I kind of straddle both worlds. But that kind of solidified a sound that was more of a crossover sound for me. So I think... If anything, there was a bit more expectation for me to kind of repeat that. I kind of bucked against that. And then immediately right after that did Neanderthal, which is kind of like this old really super underground track. So I was like, yeah, I, I, that's I, that's nice that that went pop or whatever have you. But this is where I'm from. It kind of did start this. And it's a good thing I'm a Gemini because I have this duality about me anyway. It helped me birth the S-Man, which really became kind of like my underground alter ego and the Roger Sanchez that everybody knows for the more kind of crossover, bigger productions, events, the gigs. I, you know, wanted to play in Love Parade for a million, 1.2 million people. 
And definitely that is part of my legacy. At the same time, there's this very kind of like my darker, dirtier sound, which has always been part of what I do as the S-Man. So it's really interesting seeing these two things kind of happen concurrently. And it just gave me an opportunity to try out different ideas, but also gives me the ability to try to and to explore things that are more accessible just because that's in me as well. Essentially having two lanes, two names and two genres you can kind of explore as and how you like. I think that's a really great way of giving yourself more freedom in the studio, right? Yeah. I think for me, it's always been about let me be as genuine and as real to connect with whatever I'm feeling as I possibly can, knowing full well that it's not going to satisfy one particular audience and it may be perfect for somebody else. So it's like the S-Man just doesn't connect with the big crossover radio audiences and a lot of the Roger Sanchez stuff will leave the underground thick and not as too cheesy. The funniest comments I used to get was, or the underground techno DJs like, yeah, your Roger Sanchez stuff is cool, but we really like the S Man stuff. We really like the S Man stuff. Give me, give us more S Man, and I'm just like, yeah, it's it's all me. It's still the same guy. It's just, you know, I put on this hat one day, and some days, you know, my dark evil twin will come out and just make beats. It just happens to go the way it happens to go, and I've that's also part of me accepting that aspect of it and rather than being kind of offended that what do you mean you don't like roger sanchez and you only like this man i'm like it's it's okay that's everybody's gonna like something different and the fact that i'm able to do different things is just a plus for me different songs and different music have chosen me so i'm allowing myself to be a more open vessel so these days you're pretty much all in the box is that right as a producer well Yes and no. So when I'm on the road, when I'm on the road, I'm in the box on the sense that I've got a, a pretty deep setup on my computer and a lot of plugins. I do also use a lot of the rolling cloud stuff, which sounds amazing. Um, but here at home, I also have kind of like a, a pretty cool, I got my SP1200. I have the Roland Aria system set up. I mean, you probably see the, some of the flashing lights, the buttons buzzing behind me. So I'll occasionally try to use like almost like an old school approach to get different types of sounds and different results. But necessity has me creating a lot of stuff out of the box because I've been traveling so much. So now I create blocks of time where I can go into the studio and just experiment with rack mounted gear as well as me being, you know, whatever studio around the world and or on a hotel room or wherever and just putting down ideas in the box. So what is your preferred DAW? I use a combination of Logic and Ableton Live. And there was a period in time where you could use Rewire, which is basically slaving Ableton to Logic. Ever since Ableton 10 has come out, or 11, it's either Ableton 10 or Ableton... Still rewires Ableton Live. Actually, you know what? Let me take a quick look here because I have both. Yeah, because I I used to do that as well, and they they stopped it. Yeah. So Ableton 10 is the last Ableton that still rewires to Logic, right? I still have Ableton 10. Ableton 11 is a much more agile and much more fully developed live, but I've learned how to produce a lot of stuff, and I like the sound of Logic for like vocals and for um sound design i love ableton 
for the speed of arrangement, production, sampling, and it has a sound too that's perfect for certain types of tracks. So those are the two DAWs I'm pretty much using consistently. What's the process now for you then to make a track from from starting an idea to completion? It varies every time. Sometimes I'll start a, a quick loop idea in Ableton, especially if it's like based on like a sample or whatever have you. Other times I'll just take a, a, a like a drum loop, just throw it into Logic so that I can come up and create some chords. I have a harder time working with MIDI in Ableton, I find, compared to, I find Logic far more precise and just more intuitive for me. So I'm able to to do chords and everything easier in Logic. My fiance, Kristen, when she produces, she works more in Ableton. She finds it harder to work in Logic and she works pretty well with MIDI in Ableton, but her process is a little bit different. I found the way to kind of work in Logic that allows me to kind of really get more musical. When I'm in Ableton, I'm really structuring like quick ideas, coming up with interesting, what's great for is like putting effects and stuff like that, all these samples of sounds that I have, you throw them in really, really quickly so you can get arrangement. I arrange so much quicker in, in Ableton than I do in Logic, but Logic allows me to get more kind of um, organic with the sound and really kind of get into more chord progressions and stuff like that. So best of both worlds, just like you said. What do you find is the most challenging part of making music and specifically finishing music? Getting started. (laughs) Getting started, I think, is sometimes it's the easiest and the hardest. If I have an idea that's kind of buzzing around my head, then I can't wait to kind of crack open the computer and throw something down. What I inevitably find myself in is what I hear in my head doesn't exactly always come out when I'm trying to put it out in the computer and and trying to bang it out or trying to find the sound to what I'm hearing here. And I'm trying to find it or create it. So what I force myself to do is kind of like, work through it, be patient. It's taught me, it, I, I've been able to kind of teach myself more patience with myself so I don't become frustrated. I get frustrated very easily when I hear something in my head and I can't get it down. I get angry at myself. And it's like, oh, you suck. <laughs> why, 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 why do they pay you to do this? You don't know what you're doing. This kind of doubt that inevitably so many producers I know have it. It's like, oh, I don't know why they, why they why, why they think I could do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just making it up as I go along. But inevitably, if I stay there long enough and I just kind of push past that and like, shut up, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? Just play with it. Have fun. Look, noodle. Don't worry about that idea. You know, keep it in the back head. Do something else. What are you, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? Pull it. Don't worry if you think you're being lazy or you're being kind of derivative. Just do. And that is to me, the secret, just do. Inevitably, you do enough and then you find out you get into a rhythm. So most of my songs and most of my productions come after me just sitting there kind of noodling and doing. And inevitably, I let myself trust my instincts and then I find, I grab the smoke. So it takes a while to grab that smoke and you're just kind of reaching for it until you kind of grab a ball of it and then you can kind of like almost form it like a snowball but it's made out of vapor and and ideas but then they solidify so that's the interesting part for me when it finally when i finally could touch it 
maybe not with my my hands like that, but just touch it in my mind, like, okay, now it feels like so that now it's come together. That's that moment of crystallization that I search for. That's so rewarding that even when I'm frustrated, I push through it because I know that that rewarding feeling is on the other side of that. And that's what I think I could tell most producers is be patient with yourself, have fun with it, but keep going until you get to that other point. Because on the other side of that doubt, on the other side of that failure is the reward of crystallizing something that really brings your idea to life. It is for sure something that a lot of producers that I've spoken to and artists, you know, they have that very similar self-doubt, that voice in the back of their mind. So it's kind of reassuring to know that someone of your stature, Grammy award winning, number one house music, chart topping, Roger Sanchez, you know, has that same voice. 100%. Is that something that you've had all the way through your career or do you think it's something that you become more conscious of as you've got more successful? I think it's the gift and the curse of, of any artist because I found the same thing in my paintings and in, and in and anything else that I've done that's artistic. The beginning is just having fun in the discovery process when you didn't know you could do it and all of a sudden you found out that you could do this. It's like, oh, wow, th- I could do this. And then when you actually have success and you do it well, then it's like, yay. And then it's like, can I do it again? As soon as you get into that place, having had the happy accident or whatever it is that brought you to the place of, of crystallization, doubt shows up. He's like, uh, and he's holding, he's holding success's hand. And this is something that I think artists in general, if they don't know it, they need to learn it and not fear it. Along with success and success is basically, you got your idea, you created something. Doubt is holding success's hand. And the more success you have the more doubt kind of creeps up a little bit closer and the interesting thing is the longer you do this the more you'll doubt yourself and it's okay to doubt and in essence i feel like my doubt gives me drive because if i can successfully do it again i've kind of poked doubt in the face. I've kind of gone, boop, shut up. I could do this. Doubt keeps coming back like this. No, you can't. Boop, did it again. So that's an interesting one. People are fear doubt. People fear that doubt tears a lot of people down. And especially when you've had success and you can't find that formula or that formula that gave you success now no longer is working because people move on. And there's some people get stuck in a certain place, like, oh, that's all I know how to do. If you let doubt push you to challenge yourself to try something new and don't worry about the reviews, it'll you will you will crystallize. But that's what I use doubt for. I use doubt as kind of like fuel to kind of the more I doubt myself, the more I'll push myself to do something so that I can turn around and be like, ha ha, give doubt the middle finger. That's how I see doubt. That's such a great angle to come at it from. And I think it also speaks to the importance of being authentic, being true to yourself and having fun, right? Because for me, as long as I know I'm being true to myself, at least I can hold my head up high and, and yeah, stick two fingers up at the doubt. Listen, have fun at all times with this. Even when it's work, have fun. 
that is the key to being able to have a successful career is if you continue to have fun, you're being successful. Have you had to deal with longer periods of writer's block kind of experiences? Yeah, I've gone through periods of time where I felt like my music was no longer relevant or something else was bigger or uh, people just didn't like what I was doing anymore. Like, especially when I've played out of the normal scene that I normally am. Like if I've, you know, having big records has also put me on some main stages where you'll have an act that's playing completely commercial, whatever have you. I don't follow that sound or it's EDM or whatever it is. I'm like, why am I on this stage? This ain't me. But I'm up there to do what I do. Um, And sometimes it's fallen flat and sometimes it's really connected. For me, then that translates back to going to the studio like, okay, what am I going to make? What are people, what do people want to hear? When I've fallen into that, what do people want to hear? That's when I've run into the most trouble. When I'm thinking about how to please somebody else, what's hot right now, that's when I run into trouble. Because then I'm not thinking about what idea do I want to put down. Then I'm thinking about what's the idea that's going to work the best. And I think for me, when that's happened, it's kind of like the my brain shuts down. And, and even though I'm trying to put stuff down, nothing sounds right. And I've gone through long periods of that. So what I've inevitably done is stop, walk away from the studio, go listen to stuff, recenter, listen to records, remind myself what it is that I love, what it is that I like, what do I, then remind myself, what am I feeling? And then the ideas come. The songwriting camps that we run, Open Door, the key aspect is to bring musicians together for them to connect, create and collaborate. How do you approach your collaborations and how do you ensure that you get the most out of the artists that you work with? When I collaborate with people, the first thing I ask myself is, what is the kind of goal of the project? This last couple of years, I've been focusing on my album. So every collaboration, I've gone into it as this is me working on my album. But when I'm collaborating with artists, I don't let that my ego be the driving force. I listen to who I'm working with because the reason I'm collaborating with them is because they have something that I feel would complement what I'm doing. I think together we could create something new and something interesting, whether it be a vocalist or another producer. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll go in. I, I prefer collaborating in person, but a lot of my collaborations sometimes have been nowadays is you send stems, they send it back. And that works as well. The best ones for me have always been when I've been in the studio and we have a synergy and something happens. Like not too long ago when I was spending the summertime in London last year, I had done some collaborations with different vocalists like Kelly LaRock, Kathy Brown. I also went into the studio with Denny. I've worked with a lot with a lot of people on this project. And every time it's about listening to what the other person is saying and then us Really, it's about having a conversation, a dialogue, getting to know that person is a big part of the collaborative process. So that now that I, if, I, if I'm if i comfortable and I feel like I know you, now I have a, a, a point of resonance. Like I did a track with Carneo Beats and Deneo, and we just kind of hung out in the studio. And I've worked with Carneo before, 
but he brought Danao in for this one. And then we just really vibed together and we were writing lyrics and we were like, okay, what story do you want to tell? So we come up with a narrative and then it's about putting ideas forward that really encapsulate that narrative. So whether I'd be doing the drums, you know, Carneo has an idea for a chord or a bass line or whatever have you, then, you know, Danao has a lyric idea and then I come up with something else that's i like it to be organic and i like it to really flow but i always keep that other person's personality and who they are as a main focus of blending it rather than saying well this is what i want to do today and we're doing this i don't i don't like to do that i like to trust we trust each other and sometimes i'm be like okay cool i have an idea and if you they're like well i have an idea i'm like let's try your idea and if it doesn't work, I have another idea. The thing is with collaborations is to experiment. Let the other person put down their ideas. And if you have an idea about their idea, then you could further expand on it. But if you're kind of like, no, nah, I don't like that. No, nah, I don't like that. And then shut it down. There's no point. Let's jump to your DJing. You're very much a DJ's DJ for decks these days. How do you approach your DJ sets and how do you keep it fresh for yourself and also for the crowds? Interestingly, the way my DJing has developed really has been alongside the, the development of the technology. So I would say back in the day on vinyl, I, I became a three deck DJ playing with like two tracks and acapella. So there was always constantly this, this, this movement going and this kind of telling of the story. There's that, but what I've done with the CDJs is that has allowed me to really deconstruct music so that each and every set is completely different from the other sets because i'm looping drums bass lines acapellas basically i remix tracks live the entire set and i really react to what's happening in front of me and how i'm connecting it so it's become very much a an instantaneous narrative whereas everything happens in real time my sets happen in real time the way I prepare is I take a lot of time to organize my music into ways that I can find it. So I'll have, you know, and, and it's in the way that I can see, like I have S-Man vocals, S-Man tracks. I always separate the vocals from the tracks that I know what I'm looking for. Glitterbox vocals, Glitterbox tracks, House Nation vocals. So each of these have a reference point of a sound that I'm looking for. Then I also create palettes of loops and acapellas. I'm very detailed and very organized so that I know where to find everything. It's the same way I organize my vinyl. Like I organize my vinyl by title so that I know where to find everything. And everybody has a different um, technique to how they organize. But it's about like like a chef. I My meal prep is I cut up all of my ingredients and I lay them out in a way so that I can access them quickly. And it also allows me to change. Like if I feel like this vibe that I'm kind of going for isn't connecting, I have another idea. I could flip it in a minute or I can, if I feel like a track needs, like we need some dynamics. I have snare rolls that I can bring in drops. I really deconstruct each track and remix it so that every set, it always sounds different. I never know what I'm going to play. Exactly. I know where to find everything. And I have an idea based on the crowd in front of me, who's playing before me. So if it's DJs and a certain sound, I want to bring it to my sound. I know there's a transition, 
you know, there's transition tracks that allow me to kind of bring it to where I want to, or if I want to just cold reset it, that have effects. So it really is about a performance to create a journey, but I never know what it's going to be until I'm right there. And, you know, that's where I having very detailed organization is crucial for me so that I know what I'm looking at. It also means I constantly refresh my playlist with new tracks, bringing new things, and I now have to remember where everything is. Because I come from the vinyl mentality and I remember how I or have always organized my music, and I used to, and I always still to this day, my vinyl wall you see on the top of the, the vinyl sleeve, I've written the title of the track, right? I organize my music similarly with visual cues and I group things together in sounds. So like if tribal vocals, tribal techno, shamanistic vocals, these things are all kind of the equivalent of me putting them where I could see them. But what I've done, what I'll do is I'll put all the ones that I know I want to play up to the top. So that way when I have longer sets, I can then start diving deeper in and my sets don't become predictable. You know, and I've got quite a few playlists for different styles. So that's kind of how I I meal prep the set. So looking back 30 odd years, what would you tell yourself back then, knowing what you know now? I would tell myself, you're on the right track. Don't forget to enjoy every moment. There are going to be some shit times. You'll get through them. They will suck but they will teach you lessons that will be very important that if I were to sit here and tell you now would not have the same effect as you going through them. They will suck, but they will be some of the most important lessons of your life and you're going to be fine. The one other thing I would say to my earlier self is take a little more time for yourself. You're going to do this later on in life, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt if you took a little more time for yourself now. Now, that being said, because I love the work, me taking time for myself is doing the work. So it's kind of like not change too much, but just get ready because there are going to be some 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 challenging times and moments in there. And they all add up to be being where I'm at right now. We'd like to end the podcast with three top tips for aspiring musicians and artists. So Roger Sanchez, what are your top three tips for independent musicians tip number one take inspiration from others but don't measure yourself against others they have their own journey it is not yours and you shouldn't expect yourself to do what they did because you're you number one number two be prepared to work hard work long, work often, because that's what it takes. You have to put in the work. And the third most important thing is never forget to have fun, because that's what makes all the work and everything that you're going to put into this what makes it worthwhile. As long as you're having fun, You'll never work a day in your life. And we have the one of the few things that you could do in life that doing it itself is its own reward. Thanks so much, Roger. What have you got coming up for the rest of the year? I know you've alluded to the album a few times. Yeah, busy times. I actually have a, 
a remix I've just done for Batoko. I've got a release that I've done um, coming up with Katie Alex that's going to be dropping on New State and building towards my artist album. But, you know, finishing detailing the album is really important. And then insane tour schedules, <laughs> which I'm still trying to make sure I maintain some personal time in, and I'll be in the UK for the summertime as I was last year. And really looking forward to releasing a lot of new material. Oh, and I'm getting married. And getting married this year. Round two and the last one. <laughs> Congratulations. I'm, well, I'm so super happy for you. Thank you. And I'm sure I'm not alone in saying how excited I am to hear your, your new music and obviously your new album. Thank you. So Roger Sanchez, thanks so much for joining us here on Open Door Talks. Thanks, Alex. Had a great time and I'll see you soon, brother. Thank you so much for listening to Open Door Talks today. If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the love and share it with a friend. We've also got a Spotify playlist featuring the music from the podcast. So make sure you check that out and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources. <laughs>